you do get to give glory to God through your suffering. And there's meaning and purpose and grace to the suffering of a Christian, which is, you know, which is important to think about because everybody's going to suffer. But do you suffer meaning for, you know, for meaning, for purpose, for grace? What a privilege. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview. Hello, friends, and welcome to Outstanding. This is a place, as always, where we have critical conversations about the news of the day and the ideas that shape us. And I'm your host, Joseph Backholm. In this episode, we're going to pick up a conversation that we are having with Rosaria Butterfield. If this is episode two, and if you have not listened to episode one, you do need to go back and listen to that. We talked to her about her latest book, The Five Lies of the Anti-Christian Age. But in this episode, we're going to get a bit more into her story of conversion from out and proud feminist lesbian to what many would describe today as a stodgy fundamentalist and perhaps a Christian nationalist even. And I will, I will give her, of course, the opportunity to reject those terms if she wants to. Rosaria, thanks for hanging around. Oh, Joseph, I've definitely been called worse, but that was awesome. Yeah, that was well, great. Uh, you, you can take issue if you want them, uh, want with those terms. But really, um, you know, in the, in the last episode, we talked about kind of the five lies of our anti-Christian age. And again, I'm going to encourage people to go back and listen to that. But I want to hear a bit more about this story because you're an academic in your mid-30s. You're presumably a contented, set in your worldview, set in your ways, convinced that you are right, lesbian feminist activist in the academic world, and and we kind of all know the personality, and for those of us who have been to college, we have been very well acquainted with the persons. Um, But uh, that wasn't to be your story forever. Tell us a bit about how that happened. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so after my tenure book was pretty securely written, I started working on a book about the religious right. I was basically just curious why people like you wouldn't leave the person that I used to be alone. I mean, remember back in the old, the old days of the gay rights movement, leaving consenting adults alone. I'll bet you haven't heard that quaint phrase in about 10 years, but anyway, it was my question. It was my question. And so in order to answer that question, I needed to read the Bible, and I am a smart woman who knows when I don't know enough information, and so I was really kind of looking around for somebody who knew this Bible, you know, who read Greek and Hebrew and and just had a kind of theological training, but because I'm an English professor, I couldn't just like go interview people. I needed to face a book that seemed to launch what I firmly believed was just um, a hatred, just just unearned hatred and rejection against all kinds of people. And so at this time, the promise keepers came to town and they um, uh, they were at the university. And I, I just, I mean, I just wrote a little article for the local newspaper. Now the Syracuse Post Standard gave me the full back page, made it a, the major editorial and gave it a title that I didn't give. And it was this, which was, but I was like, oh, okay, awesome, bring it on, I love it. The title was um, Promise Keeper's Message is a Danger to Democracy. I think this was about 1995 or 1996. That sounds familiar, and, right? But they didn't have the term Christian nationalism yet, so. No, not yet, kind of not yet, right. Yeah, exactly. But we did, you know, so what we did think that any kind of, you know, any of this, like any of this was a danger to my democratic life in my world. And so um, 
uh, you know, that caused a little bit of a dust up and I received a lot of hate mail and a lot of fan mail. And this is where we all say, ah, nothing really changes for Rosaria. Um, but one of the letters I received was from Pastor Ken Smith, who is the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. And it was a very thoughtful letter. It was neither hate mail, but it was clearly not fan mail. And at the bottom, he said, call me back. I would love to discuss these things. And um, I read that letter and I thought, this is amazing. This is my unpaid research assistant. He will not be able to resist talking with me because he is concerned about my soul. But what he doesn't understand is I'm going to be interviewing him. So um, that's how it started, really. Um, I, I met, uh, you know, I went to, to dinner at, 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 at Ken and Floyd's house and he was very sweet on the phone. I called him on the phone. This is back. Joseph, you're too young to remember this, but we had these phones on our desk. They were about the size of a woman's shoe and you punched them and then they made a ringing sound. I'm not too old to ear. remember those. No, I, I'm very familiar with these. You are, okay, you are okay. kind, but so, no, that is well within okay. my history. Okay. Okay. Well, it was on that particular form of technology that I yes. first connected with Pastor Ken Smith. And at the end of our conversation, he was very nice. He said, I'd like you to come over dinner. I'm like, great. Okay. Terrific. He said, oh, but you know, I realized that might make you uncomfortable coming to a home, a Christian home. You might not be used to meeting with people in homes. Would you like me to meet you? Like, should my wife and I meet you at a restaurant? And I thought that was so interesting. It was very kind of him, but I had to remind him of something. I'm a gay rights activist in New York during the heyday of AIDS. My home is a bastion of hospitality. Every night I am dealing, I'm feeding people and dealing with people. The gay community is very used to meeting in homes. That's where I am fully comfortable. And unless you're going to like ax murder me, I'm great. Home is great. Restaurants are too noisy and too expensive. And what can I bring? So, so this might sound kind of strange, but in some way there was a little bit of a like, oh, I know what we're doing. We're going to gather in a home and talk about hard things. No problem. I do this every night. So you you meet him, you're going to have this conversation, you go to his house. How long is the journey from, okay, I've met Ken Smith, seems like a reasonable guy, he's going to be my unpaid research assistant. How long yeah. is the journey yeah. from there to, oh, my goodness, this Jesus thing is actually real, I have to do something about yeah. it. Yeah, right. Two years and 500 meals is, I think, my best estimate on that. Um, I assume 500 is an exaggeration. I, it might be. I don't know. Yeah. I yeah. mean, like I'm not, I, I'm not good at math, but I mean, I was, yeah. we had many meals together more than once a week. Um, uh, his house was a lot like my, again, I, you know, my house was really active with people and food and trying to wrestle through problems. But Ken Smith's house was, was like that and different you know, same thing, like all kinds of people would walk through the door. Sometimes people would bring food. Sometimes they wouldn't. Um, they talk about hard things. But, you know, at the end of the day, at my house, my gay activist house, at the end of the day, we were writing policy. We were testifying before the legislature. We were, our our hope was in changing laws. 
And there was never a sense that your work is done. We're at Ken Smith's house. At a certain point, everybody's talking and it's loud and they're disagreeing. And Ken would just be like, okay, stop. We're going to read from the Bible now. And, uh, and you know, then we're going to take prayer requests and we're going to pray. And now we're going to sing from the Psalter and we're going to sing a psalm. Mm -hmm. And then if somebody said, but Ken, this is still a big problem. He would say, well, yes, but we've left it at the foot of the cross. You can't solve that problem, but the Lord Jesus can. And it was, um, it was things like that, that were very, uh, they pressed upon my soul. Uh, they were hands-on and tactile. And I saw for myself a community of people who believed things that were diametrically opposed to mine. And there were so many times when I thought to myself, if only I could believe this, I think things would go better for me. But here was my bottom line. I thought, yes, Rosaria, that's true. And, and I can actually now see why the gospel is called good news, because for some people it's good news. But how could it be good news for me? I'm a lesbian. It, 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 it could only be very bad news for me. But I actually do have a little window into why all these straight people think it's good news for them. And, yeah. and to actually, and, and I will tell you that when Ken and Floyd Smith and all these Christians, when they would talk about, um, about the Lord, it was clear that he was real. I mean, it, it what like they weren't talking about a metaphor. I mean, I I'm named after the Rosary. I, you know, I went to liberal Catholic schools. My my, my in fact, my English teacher first used uh, her sister Mary's uh, definition of metaphor was um, the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so like I, you know, I, I I knew about how people talked about faith and blah blah blah. But for Ken and Floyd and all these people in their life, you know. Jesus was real and risen and alive. And that was something I had to confront too. They weren't, this wasn't just a worldview. We weren't, I figured we were just going to have a worldview discussion. And I love worldview discussions. I loved them then and I love them now. And I genuinely believe that everybody thinks the same. Nobody thinks very much. And I'm bored to tears by that. So bring it on. I love it. But this was different. I, I want to dig into something you just mentioned there about mm -hmm. this struggle you had with the idea that this was good for you because you said oh this is good for them it would be nice if this is true because i actually think right. that is that is the critical question for the world today not necessarily does god exist but is god good and there are so many people who've been convinced right. that even if god does exist the god of the bible is a terrible bigoted you know person right. who just judges and torments and teases um humanity and so right. what for you, how, when, when did you cross that Rubicon from yeah, yeah. believing that this is good for other people and maybe it makes their life happy and gives them peace and contentment and yay, good for them to also, right. this is actually good for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that Rubicon, that's not the terms on which I crossed it. The first order of business, I mean, I remember like maybe a year in Ken Smith saying to me, you know what your problem is? And that's how we talked. I guess I should just tell you that it wasn't like, you know, there, is no, there were no eggshells. Like, no, Ken, what's my problem? Your problem is that you don't understand the covenantal arc of the Bible. You know, I'm like, yeah, you know, you're right, actually. I've read it through twice. 
And I, I, yeah, that would be great. Do you, he says, yeah, I'd love to, but I'd actually love to go to your class. I'd love to teach your English major because I'm like, yeah, well, no, that ain't happening, buddy. But you could, you know, you have a, you have a a student here. You can, you can do me. And so we had, um, and I talk a little bit about this in, um, in five lies of our anti-Christian age. In fact, Ken kindly allowed me to, you know, re, re, just to, to reduplicate his entire, uh, lecture to me that night. And, um, and so that was very helpful to see the covenantal arc of the of the Bible. And what happened first was, um, you know, we were at Ken Smith's house because we were always at Ken Smith's house, and um, we were singing from Psalm twenty three, and um, we got to the line, um, you know, that um, dining in the presence of my enemies, and I was feeling very sorry for myself. I was having a kind of anti-Jane Austen moment at that moment. And, you know, like, oh, you know, poor me. I'm the only lesbian here. I'm the only sexual minority. You know, nobody understands me. And these these bigots, you know, they say they accept me, but they don't approve of me. And um, and and it, and it was really powerful to sing that line because it was at that moment that the Holy Spirit really impressed upon me that I was the enemy at the table. That I wasn't the victim at the table, that I was actually the enemy. I was his enemy, and I was the enemy of all these nice Christians, and they loved me. And they sat me at their table, and they told me the truth. And it was really at that moment that I came to believe that the resurrection of Jesus was true. It was not a metaphor. Sister Mary was not accurate. It was not a metaphor, that it was true. And 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 also that the the objectivity of that that it would be true whether i believed it or not and and i have always been a someone who is drawn to strong coffee uh strong ideas uh, to truth i i've always been drawn to it i am compelled by it and so i i realized at that moment i had to commit my life to Jesus. And, and, and one of the things that happened then, so I commit my life to Jesus. I do not stop feeling like a lesbian, but I am convinced that Jesus is real and resurrected and that I am in sin. And then I'm introduced to the Westminster confession of faith and to this idea, um, with the Westminster confession of faith, chapter 15, it's called, um, repentance unto life. And so I I had to realize, I learned to realize that, you know, homosexuality is a lot of things, but it is not actually ontological. It is not actually who I am. It very much is how I feel, but it is not who I am because it can't be who I am because what I am is a woman. The only thing I can be is a woman made in the image of God. Um and so there were a number of, of of statements, and I can read some to you if, if you don't mind, that were just really Please. impactful to me. Please. Um, um, you know, repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. The doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel. Um, by it, by repentance, a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for 
and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God. But then my, my favorite is this one. Although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. And so, and then finally, men not ought to content themselves with a general repentance, but with the repentance of particulars. And and then, you know, the finally, the last one, there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. And so I was I was struggling with these ideas. I mean, I was really thinking about them. I mean, here I was, um, I mean, still a professor. Um, I still tenured in queer theory. I'm still teaching classes in queer theory. I'm still, um, you know, at this point I had break, broken up with my with my partner, but I'm still very much, you know, um, connected to dissertations and to the larger lesbian community. I'm still a, a, an activist in trying to figure out what to do with these men who are dying of AIDS. I'm going to funeral upon funeral with no hope. And, um, and, and, and I can't, you know, I'm not an idiot. So there's a logical equivalency between dying of AIDS and having the sex you're not supposed to have. I mean, like, there is no way around it. And any lesbian knew it for sure. Like, you know, and we would talk to these men and they would, demand their right to die for this and that it was idolatrous and even sinful was really obvious and but the other thing that was really compelling this was at a point when i was you know i was reading my bible in the morning and i was praying and i was just trying to make sense of things and in a very secret place the idea that there is a god in heaven who made me and takes care of me and who wants to be known, who wants to be searched and known. Um, and, and a Lord who says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Those are really powerful things. But I will tell you, there was never any point when I was so bold and courageous that I just threw it all away and said, ah, you know, I should have had a V8. You know, this is all true. This is all false. It was it was very different from that. I would take one tiny little step towards Jesus and the bridge that I had walked on, the Lord would burn down. So I couldn't run back. I couldn't run back to my lover because she hated me. I couldn't run back to, you know, it was terrific. God used all kinds of providences and betrayals to force me to face my sin and to call it sin. You've talked a lot about all of the conversations you had with the Smiths at their house and with other people who would be there. 
Um, I have relatively recently been introduced to these the idea of plausibility structures in the context of evangelism. And, mm-hmm. and the point is, when you can kind of cross social circles, that it's easier to believe something if you're surrounded by people yeah. who also believe that. And, and so for evangelism purposes, the idea is, hey, introduce your non-Christian friends to your Christian friends. Watch movies together, go bowling together, go to games, play, you know, live life together. And then it will be easier for them to see kind of how the gospel is working out in other people's lives. And it won't sound as foreign. Did that have any part in this for you? No, no, because we weren't living life together. I mean, it wasn't like I'm going to catch the gospel through a lasagna or something. I mean, I, Mm -hmm. I went in with like 10 pages of questions about the Bible and you know, Ken Smith responded with more books for me to read. And we were, it was scrappy. And and, and he would say things like, I'm not going to talk to you about this unless you're reading the Bible. Because yeah. that would be, you know, like, do your homework, you do it. Um, and so I, I would not, I would not say, and, and I think too, that those kind of plausibility structures are the things that, you know, broad evangelicalism loves. And nobody seems to get around to actually having a hard conversation what actually happened is the Smiths loved me. I was their enemy and they loved me. And they, um, and in addition to that, I mean, like, like that's not big enough, but that's pretty big. But in addition to that, what happened is I learned I could trust them with some questions I was having, um, kind of barriers I was experiencing with, um, I guess we would call it the teleology of queer theory. Yeah looking at things to their logical conclusion. And, um, and Ken would just, you know, like he would just hold up reality to me. Um, So what actually happened in our case, it had nothing to do with plausibility structures and a bunch of nonsense about, you know, watching the Super Bowl together and violating the, you know, the Lord's day. That wasn't it. What we did is that we developed a relationship that was strong. And so when Ken would bring strong words to me, there was a relationship strong enough that made those strong words perfectly appropriate. Well, I think that answers my next question because, you know, I'm in a fair number of churches and do worldview seminars and kind of talking about all these cultural issues. And every single event I ever have, somebody asked some version of this question, how do I share the truth with so-and-so, but still love them? Like this idea that the truth and love are in conflict, but that's the question is like, it's my daughter, it's a coworker. I know what the Bible says. I don't want to compromise those things, but how do I say that while still loving them? What's your response to that? I just, I really wonder if why evangelicals are so dumb. I really do. I'm just going to say it. I, is it the music that y'all have to listen to? I mean, I mean, I heard recently, right? This, you know, new, new, new uh, curriculum, compassionate and faithful. Goodness gracious. Do you really not think that those two are actually, they're not 50, 50. It's like the attributes of God. It's a hundred percent. Um, and I think the answer, I think evangelicals are a bunch of cowards and traitors in, in so many ways. They want programs to be in front of relationships. Relationships are scrappy. Relationships take time. Relationships 
get you out of your comfort zone. Um, it is totally appropriate to dine with sinners and read bad books and do it, you know, as a Christian. Um, I'm not suggesting you dine with wolves or you have the wolves, you know, be the pastor of your church, but you need to get to know people well enough so that your your words can be strong and you, you've got to know the Lord. You have to have a stronger fear of the Lord. Does anyone fear the Lord anymore? Yeah. I mean, Ken Smith helped me learn that. And I remember, you know, coming across a, a little little booklet like by Thomas Chalmers, you know, the expulsive power of a new affection. That's what happened to me. But what was expulsive was the fear of the Lord forces you into that. And so I would just commend, I think it's, is it Proverbs 25, 29? Um, you know, the fear of the Lord is safe, but fear of man is a snare. Too many of these people are snared. Now, when it comes to your children, this is an important subject. And in fact, the appendix of my book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, is exclusively devoted to how to accept your children without um, becoming indoctrinated by the false things they believe, but how to stay connected. It is very important that parents do everything you can um, to stay connected and to retain your child's history. Your child, but part of the um, part of it's almost a sacrament in the 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 gay and the trans movement is uh, to come out as a as an act of kind of reinventing yourself. Well, mom, dad, don't let that happen. If you need to go buy a pod and put all of your child's, you know, dresses and pottery and artwork and everything that was just part of the fabric of her life and her childhood before she fell into this, this sin and, and this seduction and this deception, do it. Go buy, buy a pod, put it in your backyard, keep everything. She will need it someday. She will need it. One last topic I want to touch on with you is deconstruction, which is a hmm. popular topic of conversation these days. But you deconstructed in the opposite direction of a lot of people who are deconstructing today. Um, people have in their family, um, people who have, quote unquote, deconstructed. There are probably people listening today who might consider themselves to be deconstructionists or on some version of that where they're reconsidering what their faith means. And oftentimes that just leads them away from faith. What is your thoughts on the deconstruction movement as you observe it today? Right, 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 right. You know, I, um, first of all, we need to start using biblical words, all right? De deconstruction, Derridian deconstruction has nothing to do with uh, what you and I need to talk about. What we're talking about is apostasy and why evangelicals have decided to make apostasy like a thing that you can somehow redeem for your, I don't know, future benefit is just nonsense. Now, I didn't deconstruct. I was converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Somewhere up there in the heavens, the Lord justified me. He, 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 in that holy courtroom, you know, took me from my chains around Adam and chained me to Christ. Uh, that's Thomas Goodwin's word picture of that. And now chained to Christ, 
I was given the resurrected power along with the blood of Christ to have both forgiveness and the power to fight my sin, which was real and raw and hard. And furthermore, I had a whole church full of people who said, Rosaria, you're doing what everybody does. You repent of your sin and you turn from it and you live for Christ. A born again Christian is a person who does that. And behold, you're in a whole church of people who did that. There was nobody in the church who said, gosh, maybe we need a lesbian bowling league so that in this church so that you don't feel alone. Uh, that would be what idiots do. And that's what you see a bunch of idiots doing. And so stop, you know, and then these books about, oh, all these people have deconstructed their faith. How do we get them back? Well, if they're not Christians, you need to preach the gospel to them. But if if they are apostate, you only want them back if they've committed, if they've converted, or if if they indeed are willing to acknowledge what is true. And so I just commend a really good book to you by Mark Jones. It's called The Pilgrim's Regress, Guarding Against Backsliding and Apostasy in the Christian Life. And if we start using biblical terms, it's an excellent book. If you don't know Mark Jones's work, the only detriment to a Mark Jones book is that he writes them so often that usually I'm not finished with his last one before he's written another one. And I'm like, ah, Mark, you're so young and smart. It's annoying. But so I would just suggest, no, this is what a born again Christian is. A born again Christian is someone who sees victory over your indwelling sin. My husband is a pastor. And I should say this too. I want to say this. I think it was easier for me. It was easier for me because the church I went into wasn't nuts. They didn't think that I needed a lesbian bowling league or I needed I needed empathy. They think they thought I needed to, you know, repent of my sin and get on with it. Yeah. But I also have been biblically married for almost as long as I've been a Christian. And was it first, was it easy? Not easy. But here's what I know that and this is true for everything in life. And you know, as a parent, this is how it works. Responding to what is good teaches you to be good. So these are good things. Marriage is a good thing. It is a blessing. I am grateful for it. It was probably, it's probably my biggest earthly blessing, um, you know, beyond the, the, the fact of the, the fact that I get to be a part of a church as the, as the pastor's wife, that is an amazing yeah. thing too. So I would say, call things what they are. My husband is a pastor. He works with men from, um, a rescue mission. Many of them have been addicted to major, you know, drugs and have been homeless for you know decades and decades. Can you imagine using the gay Christian analysis and bringing it to them and saying, "Well, you know what? This is just who you are. You are not going to change uh, because God just doesn't do those things." That's like, whoo, you know, not God. He's just too small. He can't. He cannot change your feelings. He cannot change your heart. He certainly cannot change your circumstances, but God really does love you. Yeah. You know, I, there's not anybody stupid enough to want to buy that. That's dumb. Yeah. So we need to start preaching and proclaiming and believing in the gospel where born again Christians like the apostle Paul can say, as the words of Romans 7 will put it, why do I do what I don't want to do? It is not I, 
but the law of sin in me. So do we fight sin our whole life? If we're not fighting it, then we're obeying it. So we better be fighting it. Rosaria, I think I got one final one for you. Sure. Because I know somebody's listening to this today and they're feeling convicted. And this repentance idea, in some ways, when you're chained in sin, you want to be free from that. But there's also a bunch of things that you fear. And and it's kind of like my whole life is invested in one direction. I, you know, I want to go a different direction, but there's a lot of reasons why that's going to be complicated. What was the hardest part of repentance and change for you? Yeah, yeah. Before I say the hardest, let me tell you that I was never doing this alone. I mean, and I and I think this is really important. Too often evangelicals have this kind of lonely sailor approach to this. Um, I had a I had an amazing church. I have an amazing church. The church needs to be ready to walk with repentant sinners and meet them where they are at as they're walking with them. And that is what I had. So I wasn't my fear wasn't that I would be alone. My fear was not that I would have nobody to celebrate holidays with, or I, I was not, I was not burdened with this idea that I was going to go from a thriving community to like be a German monk or something in, you know, a prison cell. Uh, now I had to learn to love these church people. They weren't my first choice, quite frankly. Right. But they were there. So the first thing I would say from the church's end is walk with repentant sinners and and move in close. And, you know, Ken and Flay Smith, they really moved in close. They weren't exactly stalkers, but they were kind of close to that. They were not letting me go. And the same thing is with parents and others. Don't let prodigals go. Move in close. Get to know them. Find ways to connect. Um, But I would say the hardest part was just really wondering, is it true? Like, what if I commit my life to Jesus and I repent of sin and my lesbian feelings never go away? Um, And I think at that point, I had to to do two things. I I had to, I mean, I think at one point somebody in the church said to me, you know, is the empty tomb not worth it? Like, okay, you know, like, okay, I mean, I get it. I guess that could happen. I guess that could happen, right? You could, you could repent of your sin and your feelings don't really go away. Um, I mean, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that your, your sin, your sin will be subdued so that you can live for Christ. But what does subdued mean when it comes to like sexual sin? That's kind of a big question. And so it is a hard one, but it's a really, it's a good question that was asked to me. Is the empty tomb sufficient? Is, do, am I a Christian because I believe that I should shore up my sufferings with Jesus or because I'm just kind of looking for a 12-step program? Because if that's the case, this is not for you. This is not for you. This is about the honor and glory of Christ. And we will all be called to suffer. Some of us will be called to die for this. And so so to really be clear on that question that is Christ worth it? Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ crucified and resurrected? Have you have you fully imbibed, you know, Romans like, you know, one through eight, or just give the whole book of Romans, why not? You know, have you seen the beauty of the Lord? And, and, um, and so, yes, I mean, in the Christian church, you have 
you know, it's not a very democratic place, right? I mean, some people suffer more than others. Some people struggle more than others. Um, are you in a place where people will come up alongside you? Um, some people have one cross to bear, others 10. Are you in a place where somebody's going to help lift the weight of that? Um, and then the other is that the Christian life is not something that you figure out today. You do the next right thing. And you you trust and you and you and, and you know, and you talk to other people in your church who can tell you stories about how they have been liberated from sin. You talk to other people who used to be captives. And here's the thing about my homosexuality or somebody else's drug addiction or any of this. In a church, this is all part of our biography, not part of our nature. And so whatever sin you're dealing with, it's, it's part of your biography in Christ. I mean, it won't be in the New Jerusalem, like... I, I will not be Rosaria the lesbian any longer. Rahab the harlot will be exonerated from this title. Um, so anyway, does that make sense? It, it, it totally makes sense. It's, you know, and, and if God is who he says he is, we can trust him with the future. And I think that's one thing we have to be yeah. uh, con convinced of if we are going to walk this journey. You're not going to answer every question. And, and certainly um, not only did Jesus not promise us that everything was going to be perfect, he promised us the opposite. In this world, you will have trouble, but right. take heart for I have overcome the world. He has overcome the world and ultimately he is worthy. And the struggles that we have between now and the end of this life, whenever that may be, are real, but he can be glorified in it. We can find joy in it, and ultimately we will be released from it in the next life, and that's the great promise. Um, and of you know, and that's the that's the pot at the end of the rainbow of repentance. The the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is is eternity with Jesus, and um, it's worth it. And it's also the opportunity to give glory to God. Amen. He made yeah. you. Yeah. And th that is the opportunity to to think, even to think in those terms, that our lives could give glory to God through our suffering is an yeah. amazing privilege that Christians get to get to do, to step into, yeah. you know, Philippians talks about, you know, share in the sufferings of, of Jesus. I don't mean that's not talking about the, you know, the sufferings on the cross. No, but you do get to give glory to God through your suffering. And there's meaning and purpose and grace to the suffering of a Christian, which is, you know, which is important to think about because everybody's going to suffer. But do you suffer meaning for, you know, for meaning, for purpose, for grace? What a privilege. Rosario Butterfield, thank you so much for joining us yeah. today. And I know that many yeah. are encouraged by it. I am and uh, look forward to maybe doing this again in the future. Bless you. Sounds great. Bless you. And friends, we thank you for joining this conversation. If you have enjoyed it, and I know you have, if you've learned something, share it with a friend. Uh, that's how people find out about it. And that's how also uh, people learn and are encouraged in the way you have been today. So do share it with a friend. Remember to like and subscribe wherever you are finding us because that's the only way you get the new episodes delivered to you every Tuesday and Friday. Also, this is entirely a listener-supported effort. If you'd like to support this effort, text the word OUTSTANDING to 67742. We greatly appreciate all that you make possible. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, please email me at outstanding at washingtonstand.com. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Get your topic suggestions 
It's been a pleasure. Look forward to next time. My name is Joseph Backholm, and this has been Outstanding. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview.